Welcome to Back Chat. This is a podcast where we talk to interesting people about interesting things. Our aim is to cover a range of different industries and specialties, finding out what makes people tick, how they got to where they got to, and what their plans are moving forward. Our guest this week is a director of the Local Quality Commission, and someone who's become a bit of a figurehead for BAME people growing up in rural communities. Uh, welcome, Hadi Guy. Here now with more news, debate, and opinion. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Hadi. We're really, really excited to have you on this week. No, I'm really great. It's really great to be here. Thank you both. No worries at all. No worries at all. So before we get into the, sort of the first questions, just so for the readers now out there, so we, we had there's a few issues in actually getting you on. We meant to record this a little while ago originally, but a few things kept coming up. One of them involving a bit of a, a police incident. I don't know if are you able to sort of just give a little bit of light into what happened there? Yeah, of course. Um, it was an incident... Um... I can't actually remember which incident it was. There's been two recently, um, but instances of racial abuse. There was one um, where somebody had set up a website online, um, a fairly racially offensive website about me um, and taking the time to kind of create a blog post. Um, and, you know, there was like these like overtly racist comments like through mm. this thread, um, which I reported to the police, um, as I have done with several other instances over the year. Um, and there was another incident where... Um, I happened to be out a couple of months ago um, when we weren't in lockdown (laughs) Um, and I had been severely racially abused on the street um, by two women um, who were arrested at the same time. Um, But yeah, so I had to um, go and give statements. I can't honestly remember at that time now which one of the two it was. Um, But yeah, it's been it's been a thing this year where there's been I mean, I suppose the Black Lives Matter stuff kind of exacerbated that and provided people with more of a a reason I suppose to kind of do you think you've kind of experienced more racism this year or last year I guess that's what you're um, saying I think from my own personal perspective because of the position that I've been in um in the last sort of six months yes absolutely um but then I suppose that I mean there is no there is never any excuse for racial abuse but I suppose I've put myself in a a slightly more public position where people have you know, and people are entitled to their opinions. Um, racist ones, obviously not. Um, <laughs> but you know, that I have I have put myself in a situation where I've opened myself up for criticism, um, and a lot of that has been overt racism. Um, but I would say, just in general, I think over the last sort of few years, I suppose politically and socially, we've been in a a difficult situation. You know, and with Brexit and this kind of sort of uprising of this sort of right wing nationalist yeah. movement, I guess, in in the UK. Um, I think it's been obvious that there have been a lot more instances of racism. I think it's become slightly more acceptable, um, you know, in in our country and globally, I suppose, um, for that to be sort of more prominent, I guess. Definitely, definitely. I mean, just to, to give the listeners some context, I guess. So at the height of the protests in summer, you attempted to bring Black Lives Matter demonstrations to rural England. Uh, and in short, I think it's fair to say you received a fair bit of resistance from like local residents and, and local MPs and, and all sorts of different people. Can you just give a brief overview as to what happened and sort of the pushbacks you've had? And then I guess, obviously, the sort of racial abuse incidents come off the back of that. Yeah, of course. Um, I think it was, you know, at the beginning of, well, kind of the beginning of the summer, um, you know, it was it was fairly obvious that there was um, sort of a global movement going on after the murder of mm. George Floyd. Yeah. Um, and I think it was something that we wanted to show some solidarity with um, in our local area because it hadn't been done yet. Um, you know, I'm a young mixed race woman in a predominantly white area. 
Mm. Um, and I suppose issues around racial justice and police brutality and racism are conversations that aren't necessarily had in these spaces um, yeah. because I suppose there's this underlying idea that they don't exist. It doesn't, it's not a problem here. Um, so we organised the protest. Um, we wanted to make sure that we did it correctly. So we went through all the right channels. We spoke with the police. We spoke with local councils. Um, and we wanted to make sure that it was done properly so that there couldn't be any backlash or so we thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we were granted permission to use um, the space in Lydney, which was fantastic. Um, we spoke with some local news outlets just to let people know that it was happening. If anybody else, you know, felt as passionately as we did about kind of supporting this movement and highlighting, you know, racial injustice that's going on across the world, but particularly in our, in our area. Um, we did that and I think that article was dropped into a local forum and from there it was kind of cataclysmic and um, you know there were hundreds and hundreds of comments um, not all of them negative a lot of them you know were incredibly supportive of people you know who wanted to also attend the event and wanted to show solidarity um, with movement um, but a lot of it was you know racial abuse um, and I suppose we have to attribute some of it to concerns around the pandemic, which we we were aware of when we started. Um, and we knew that we were in the middle of a pandemic and that people would be concerned and that there were health and safety concerns. But we tried as best we could to, to kind of accommodate for that and ensure that we'd put something on that was very safe um, and within the guidelines. Um, and there was a petition started by a local resident um, that was then sent forward to the council. Um, the council withdrew their support and told us that they weren't going to allow us to have the event anymore um, and wrote me a letter um, cancelling the event in favour of All Lives Matter um, as opposed to just Black Lives Matter. Um, and there was, you know, a, a lot of debate around that letter and they didn't apparently understand the connotations associated with All Lives Matter. Um, so that was another issue in itself. Um, and it was actually really thankful to the police. Um, they kind of found some legislation somewhere that had suggested there would be repercussions if we weren't allowed to go ahead with the event. Um, so it went to a vote and the council um, voted and they allowed us to go ahead, which was fantastic. Um, so we did go ahead with the event in the end, um, but it was kind of just problem after problem and this continuum of, of I suppose, um, people expressing their concerns and expressing racism and racial abuse and threats of anti-protest. And there, and there were threats, you know, for the entirety of this period and also afterwards um but yeah it was it was a bit of a a bit of an up and down <laughs> it just sounds like such a scary time for you like what was it like obviously you, you've got a, like a young daughter and obviously family and yeah. stuff like, what was it like being in the mixer and obviously like being so involved in organizing that but also the, the pushback from people and quite angry pushback it sounds like as well yeah I think it was um for the, I, I suppose for the two weeks leading up to it, it, we were just running off adrenaline constantly. You know, we spent hours and hours, days and days just reading through Facebook comments and reading through articles. And I suppose the, the further we got into the process, the more articles that were coming out and the more comments we were seeing. Um, but I think it was the, the night before when we had a threat of like 200 anti-protesters turning up and there was gonna be riots and, you know, and it was these threats of violence, which is something that we'd never wanted because the whole point of this was to do something that was, you know, highlighting exactly that and the reasons as to why this needs to stop. Um, but I suppose actually the threats and, and the violence and the aggression and stuff actually got worse afterwards. Um, I moved out of my house for three weeks um, because I was followed home by somebody who was an anti-protester. Um, wow. You know, that was reported to the police. Um, you know, there was pictures of my car all over Facebook, people telling people where I lived. Um, so I moved home, I moved, well, not moved home technically, <laughs> moved back to my mum's home. 
um, and stayed there for three weeks just because I, I didn't want to be in this house, you know, and, and nobody ever did fortunately turn up. Um, but it was all over Facebook and all over different social platforms that, you know, to watch my back and there are people coming for me and the same for Lenny, um, my friend who I'd organized it with. Um, and that was really scary. I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I've had or genuinely felt like there was a threat against my safety. Um, and I think that was that was difficult. And that was afterwards. I think leading up to it, you know, we we kind of just um, found ourselves in a situation where we were so passionate about ensuring that the event went ahead that all of those things kind of were brushed under the carpet, I suppose. And then I think the reality set in afterwards um, as to kind of the severity of it and and how unsafe, I suppose, that we felt really. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. But I mean, we'd done something that we felt was positive and the event itself had been fantastic. So I suppose that made up for the negative impact that it had as well. I'd be quite interested to know how your personal relationship with the community has been affected by that. I think that's a really difficult one. I think that um, I suppose going up in an area like this anyway and being in such a small minority, um, you know, the demographic anyway, there isn't there isn't a black community, I suppose. Um, so I suppose you've always I've always felt maybe slightly like isolated from the actual community, um, whether that's just something that I feel personally. Um, but, you know, going up through school, you experience racism from a very early age. Um, and I suppose this is my home, but I suppose it's in some senses, I don't feel that it is. Um, and I think since the event, it's been fantastic because there have been a huge amount of people who have been so supportive and have, you know, encouraged us and, and stood with us and have motivated us and have continued to support us through the journey since then. Um, so I'm incredibly grateful for that, but there also are a large proportion of people who um, still dislike us um, and still dislike what we've done. Um, but I think for me, it's quite easy to overcome that now um, because whilst at the time I could maybe contribute some of that to, um, you know, there being a pandemic and people just being uneasy with what we were doing in the current climate. But actually now it's just obvious that a lot of those concerns were underlying racism um so I think whilst it's you know it's been slightly negative actually I think it's highlighted that there is a problem um in the Forest of Dean and in these rural areas that isn't being addressed um so I suppose I I feel like the community that I have where I live is the community that I would want to be a part of anyway um so I suppose yeah I suppose it's been a bit of a I don't know it's it's a, it's a strange one I think it's it's been positive in some ways but I think it's also highlighted some issues um that need to be worked on in many rural areas like Lydney mm -hmm. there's very little diversity which means you're almost trapped inside this little bubble which is the same as where me and Will grew up in Wiltshire mm -hmm. and people almost don't realize that racism is a problem I find it's very easy to fall into that trap I mean how do you mm -hmm. think we change this and secondly, from sort of growing up, and you kind of touched on the racism you experienced at a young age, did you always know that it was it was wrong, if you know what I mean? Or did you get to a certain mm -hmm. age and, and realise, like, no, this is, this, this is not allowed kind of thing? Yeah, um, I think it's the same here. The Forest of Dean is a very insular bubble. Um, and I would say that we are very separate from society in some senses, and it's not a particularly progressive area. Um, and I think there is, 
I suppose in an area that's predominantly white, it's very, very easy to ignore racism because there is the privilege of turning away from it and it being something that doesn't affect you. Um, so whilst I've experienced it and I know that it's it's very rife, um, the large proportion of the demographic here don't because it's not something they will ever experience. Um, and I think a lot of that work in trying to change that and tackle that comes from comes from a point of empathy and a point of understanding and a point of education. Um, and I think that's a big part of the work that we're trying to do now is how do we how do we present these problems in a way that people will understand and empathize with so that we can make some real systemic change. Um, and, and that's difficult. And you know, a lot of that is having conversations, uncomfortable conversations with people that don't necessarily agree with you and don't want to hear what you have to say. Um, and that's very problematic, but I think uh, the approach that we've tried to take here is that educating the younger generations and you know, tackling racism from a very early age is the best place to start because we are not born racist, we are taught racism. Mm. Um, and in spaces like this, where you don't have the exposure to culture and diversity and different races, I think it's more important that we have an understanding from a very early age of, of what that is, um, you know, and we have to, to find a way to engage with these children and provide them with an understanding that this, this isn't right. And, and, you know, and this is something that we have to, to tackle now, um, but in a way that makes sense contextually. Um, because I think in the bigger metropolitan spaces, it's a lot easier to have discussions around race and inequality. Um, but places like this where you don't see it so much necessarily, it's harder to provide people with that element of empathy so that they have an understanding of why. Um, so I think that's the approach that we've taken in trying to tackle it. Um, and your second question, um, I've had a bit of a struggle with myself, I think, over the last few months for exactly that reason. Um, and I think a big part of the work that we've done and doing the Black Lives Matter protest for me was that I've probably always been very reactive when it comes to racism as opposed to proactive. Um, and I think growing up in an area like this where you are one of very few mixed race children from a very early age, um, you know, it's obvious that you're already in a minority. Um, and I think growing up in my family situation that I did, my mum and dad were divorced. Um, so I grew up with my mum and her side of the family who are also all white. Um, so I was probably quite distanced from my black heritage anyway. Um, and I think that when you are young and you are in that space, um, you already stand out and you want to fit in. Um, and you don't want to be the person who is constantly calling out racism for again, those same reasons, that generic stereotyping of being the young angry black girl or having a chip on your shoulder, um, you know, and I think that plays a big part in probably how often I particularly um, address racism. I think when I was very, very little, um, you know, in primary school, I maybe didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Um, and then I got to secondary school and I became a lot more vocal, I suppose, in tackling racism. But I think, you know, I was very complicit in allowing it to happen. I was looking at my leaver shirt a couple of weeks ago, you know, and excuse my language, but there is nigs written all over it. And I went through secondary school with the nickname nigs. That was what I was known as, um, you know, and it's all over my leaver shirt. It's in my leavers book, like, good luck, nigs. We're going to miss you and like, have a great time, nigger, like, good luck with your life. And and the worst part is this is people that I would consider to be my friends, um, you know, and, and I, I suppose I look back at it now and understand that maybe there wasn't any malice, um, but I was complicit in allowing that to happen. Um, 
and it's difficult I think because you don't want to isolate yourself even further when you already feel isolated you know you are presented with this idea of beauty especially being a young woman um you know and you don't have straight blonde hair and you don't look the same as all of these these girls that you are growing up with and and then on top of that do you want to be the person who is constantly calling out racism because there is a lot of it and there was a lot of it when I was in secondary school um and I think that's difficult and I think that's something that I now want to ensure that we provide a platform for younger generations in similar situations so that that doesn't happen again um because I probably allowed it to go on for a lot longer than I should have <laughs> do you know everything you've just said there like has really resonated with me um like I found during the protest so I'm like a mixed race Mm-hmm. from a rural area and I have a lot of stronger ties to the white side of my family than the black so mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff it really resonates with me what you said there like you'll be at school and there's things that people say to you and you're missing you know there's the card you dealt like you know you know you're the black kid in school the people are allowed to say this or that and make these sort of jokes and you just gotta laugh along with it and like the same thing you don't want to be like oh why, why you you know why can't we laugh at you stop being all uptight all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. almost feel, you almost feel guilty and to sort of allow that stuff to happen um yeah. And I think for me, it was only when the protest really sort of came to light in summer, I actually stood back and thought, actually, all of the stuff that goes on all the time in our friendship group, it, it's actually not okay. It, and that yeah. It really, yeah, and it really resonated with just then what you were just saying there. So yeah, very powerful message. For, for a lot of people, the movement started in summer, uh, in summer mm-hmm. but it's been around obviously for a number of years. Um, yeah. You know, would you say the protests of summer were a success for the wider movement? Yeah, I would say that... Um... I think for me, it's a, it's a really difficult one because I find it deeply disheartening that it took the murder of yet another black man for, for this movement to, to gain the traction that it did over the summer. Um, so I suppose looking at it from that perspective, it, it's frustrating and it's deeply saddening. Um, but I think it has, and I think it, it empowered people and it brought light to um, the issues that people are facing every day. This is not it's not abnormal. Police brutality Mm. and the murder of black people and persecution for skin color and racism is rife. It's happening all the time. Um, And I think it did a fantastic job in highlighting those issues again and bringing them to the surface. But I think, you know, since then, I think we've all seen that there has been a decline in enthusiasm for the movement again. Um, And people aren't talking about it as much and people aren't working on an equality agenda and fighting for justice as much as they were. And I think that's the difficulty in tackling racism is that, you know, there was a huge kind of um, burst of enthusiasm for this over the summer and everybody was, you know, protesting and fighting for what was right. And that's fantastic, but it's actually, how do we keep that momentum going long-term so that there is actually some systemic and fundamental change and that this isn't something that happens every few years. Um, when we there is another tragedy within a black community the way I think about it or the way it seems to me is there almost comes in waves and this happens with racial issues environmental issues everything even politics that something becomes almost trendy to post on social media for a couple of months how do you kind of perpetuate this if you know what I mean like where does the movement go from now um I completely agree with you I think that is the problem is that it becomes a trend you know I suppose the black squares are a perfect example um over the summer of you know people who and and, and it's not to say that that's not it's not a good thing it's not yeah, to say that that's not great that people are drawing awareness but it's to say what are you doing after that and that posting a black square on your Instagram for a day 
doesn't eradicate racism, <laughs> you know, and actually I agree with you. And I think it does become, it becomes a trend and it becomes a fad and it becomes something that's popular to speak about. And it becomes, I suppose, almost the way I think sometimes for people to remove themselves of any guilt. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of people that I saw that I went to school with who are some of the people who are responsible for writing those things on my Libra shirts who are posting black squares. Um, you know, and for me, it's ironic because it's, it's like <laughs> you are part of the problem, but I feel like sometimes it's a, a way to utilize current trends to remove that kind of sense of knowing that you've been complicit in allowing it, but making it feel as though you're now making a difference. Um, and that's not to say again that people can't change, but um, it's not enough. Um, and you know, and, and there are ways to engage in activism and there are ways to tackle racism that don't involve you know, a huge, a huge amount of commitment. You know, there are petitions, there is education, it is reading, it's understanding, it's listening to lived experience. It's having conversations with those in your inner circle. And I think it's like that very cliched trope of actually, if you can have a conversation with one person and change a mindset, that's enough in tackling racism, I think, on a small grassroots scale. Um, and I think that's, that's where we all have to start. I don't think we can expect some kind of overnight huge change um but for people to engage in those conversations and to to ask those uncomfortable questions and to read and to learn um is enough i think so for you is that the next stage of the movement would you say the smaller grassroots bits rather than the, the sort of the bit large scale protests we saw in summer i think expecting kind of this overarching large scale change to happen is not realistic um and I think that was why we wanted to do something that was grassroots. So setting up the Local Equality Commission, that was the aim of that was to tackle the issues in our small area, um, you know, and, and, and long term, I suppose, to create a model that can be picked up for race based rural equality work and and moved around. Um, but I think I think that has to be the first step. I think it has to be that people are using the resources and that we we start the conversation because, it, again, you know, people aren't talking about it anymore as much as they were in the summer. Um, and I think the thing we noticed in the forest particularly was that whilst some of those conversations that were being had weren't particularly positive, actually it's positive that people are having conversations at all um, about this topic. And I think, you know, there are, there are so many resources out there available to people. Like we are in a world where the internet is like so accessible and all of these things are so accessible. Um, and to start there is a is a very easy place for people to begin, um, but something that can actually make a, a big change long term. I had that debate with, to be fair, probably about, <laughs> about the um, the scouts leader, and he kind of came storming in the door and was like, "I can't believe they've they've torn down his statue, blah blah blah. You can't can't get rid of history or whatever." And then we kind of sat down. And I was like, "Just look him up, and then come back to me in twenty minutes." And then he was mm -hmm. like, "Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I take it back." And I think yeah. people just that's such to... an important point, Ed. Like it, it comes back down to sort of like education, doesn't it? People don't yeah. people don't realise yeah, that yeah. stuff. So it's almost like in a way you do sympathise with people who have those views, like because it's you know it's not it's just it's, it's an ignorance thing. It's not it's no malice in it yeah. necessarily. So it comes back to that whole point of the education and the there's the smaller grassroots bits, I guess. I think that's really important. And I think actually, you know, those conversations are the conversations that make change. Um, and I think people I think there's like an uncomfortable um, element when people are talking about race. And I feel like people don't want to have those conversations. Like, I don't know whether it's out of fear um, of saying the wrong thing or fear of the topic itself or, 
you know, um, whatever it may be, but actually that's the prime example of, of why we are not making a huge amount of progress is because people aren't understanding and aren't being provided with that information to make that change. Yeah, and it starts early, doesn't it? Exactly what you're mm. trying to do, target early, which is pretty key. So just moving on slightly, I guess, to so when we when we prepared for this, um, it was quite topical. The Mill fans were in the news for um, you know, the did you see that? They were they, when they let fans back into football grounds, they were booing, mm-hmm. um, taking the knee. And their their mm-hmm. claim was that um the BLM movement has been hijacked by politics. So we're just interested to hear what your thoughts are on this. And do you think football is especially racist or is this almost a wide, small segment of... Um, I've had this debate also. um, And the Black Lives Matter movement is about human rights. It's not about politics. Um, And I suppose that's my stance on it. It's, It's not political because basic black human rights aren't politics. Um, I mean, to, a, to an extent, yes, I agree they are, but this is about human rights. It's not about um, tit-for-tat political debates, I suppose. Um, sports and those arenas are, and have historically always been relatively racist. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of an, um, it's, a, it's a difficult space and it's a difficult, topic I suppose because you are it goes back to that history thing that we're doing at uni at the moment which is black people in these arenas um you know and it's that black excellence argument of people being in these spaces where black people have been barred from for so many years um but I suppose for the purposes of white entertainment have found fame whether it's in sports or music or whatever it may be um you know and and I think in football there are so many instances and have been so many instances, whether it's people being called monkeys or bananas being thrown on a pitch. Um, and I suppose it just reiterates kind of the racism that is in society, but on a, on a small scale and in that, within that segment. Um, and the taking the knee debate, um, again, is one I've had so many times over the last few months. Um, and it's not about politics and it's not about this left-wing Marxist movement, which everybody refers to it as. It's about a show of solidarity um, for the murder of George Floyd. And, and that's, that's what it is. Um, and I think that people taking issue with that for me um, is a form of racism. And I think it's difficult to argue mm. that it's not from a, place of, from a place of racial prejudice anyway, if you want to, to take it from that space. But I think, I think when you look at any of those kind of... Um, avenues through sport and whatever it may be it's it's a very difficult space to navigate um discussions of race so so you sort of touched on earlier about obviously being mixed race in, in these rural mm. areas so the work you've done obviously is, is is so powerful for people right across the BAME sort of segment but would you say that you or do you feel like you face particular challenges being mixed race rather than sort of fully black or fully Asian yeah absolutely you don't fit anywhere (laughs) to put it bluntly I think that's a thing that you come to understand when you're younger is that you are not white enough but you are also not black enough yeah um so where is your space where do you sit 
within that, you know, and I am 50% white, but if I was to call myself white, that would make absolutely no sense. <laughs> but yeah. I'm also 50% black, but I can't be black either. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's really difficult, I think, when you're finding yourself identity as somebody who is a person of colour um, from an ethnic background. Um, I think being mixed race just adds that extra level of kind of difficulties because you you don't or you can't work out who you are I suppose yeah um and you know and it's you don't want you can't talk on behalf of I suppose it comes down to lived experience and I suppose the lived experience being mixed raced in a in a rural space like mine um you know I often get the you don't sound black you don't behave black you don't act like you're black yeah um so I suppose that's terribly been an advantage um and you know people don't tar me with the same brush that they do with generic racism that I am this very hostile volatile young black person who is you know the 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 usual stereotyping that happens with black people um you know and that's something that I have experienced to an extent but also haven't and I think that's where it's so difficult because there's so much crossover and it's so intersectional that you almost get lost in it and you're like oh my god like (laughs) where am I like who am I what what like where where do I sit in this space and that's and that's really hard um but I think I was having yeah yeah, I was having a conversation with um one of my friends and we were saying that actually it's you know when you're in with your white friends and they're talking about black people when you're younger and you know whether Mm. it's like a microaggression or whatever it may be it's it's that whole argument of oh no but we're not talking about you um and then oh, no, when you're, you're okay your, yeah you're fine but we don't yeah. mean you like you're yeah. not one of them um but then I think it gives you that I suppose it's that unique bridge that you have between the black community and the white community that necessarily black people wouldn't have mm. with the the white community um but it's really difficult I think like <laughs> just being black or mixed race in society today is just like it's just incredibly it's confusing and difficult yeah absolutely. like when people say like oh you're, you're the whitest black person I know or something like that. It's like, what does that mean? Because I did my homework, that means I'm not black. Like, I don't, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a hurtful thing, to be fair. And like you're saying, yeah. it, it has, uh, badly, but it has its, it has its perks. But yeah, it's, it's hurtful because like you say, you don't fit into either box. Um, and so what you said earlier about sort of living with your mum's side of the family, so not having that connection necessarily as tight with, with the black side is, is the same for me. And I think, you know, when you get excluded from white society or white culture, you then almost don't have that black culture to fall back on. It's like, oh, I, mm-hmm. I can't then like, I don't know, go and cook like West Indian food because I've never been taught. I don't know that side. All I know is the no. white side, but I, I, I'm not allowed in that either. So it's, it is yeah. difficult. Mm-hmm. Completely, completely yeah. agree with you. I think it's something that mixed race people don't talk about either. No. Um, and it's actually really interesting to hear other people's perspectives because you don't realise mm. how many people feel that same thing. Genuinely. And I, honestly, I've only, I only realised that in the summer when these protests are going on and I was just like, yeah, I've actually, and obviously the conversation start and there's other podcasts listening in and, you know, started sort of almost reading into it more. And I think actually, yeah, that resonates so true with me. Like I don't, I don't really fit in anywhere. I don't really have my own culture that I'm fully like accepted into. Mm-hmm. I mean, since we kind of reached out to you to start with, a lot has happened in America. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, do you feel positive about, you know, things? Because on the one hand, we've got, Kamala Harris, the first black woman as vice president. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there was the massive contrast in reaction to the uh, BLM protests and the insurrection on Capitol Hill. Um, I found, I've, I suppose I personally have found the last few weeks incredibly frustrating. 
Um, and I think that's been felt within black communities and for black people um, globally. I think the reaction and the stark contrast in reaction um, was a harsh reminder of the summer. Um, and I suppose maybe of how little we've progressed. Um, and, and I suppose that comes back to the question earlier that you said about, you know, do you think the Black Lives Matter movement has, has helped to make some change? And I think that is a reminder that maybe not. Um, and that's difficult to accept, I suppose, especially when you have continued to do the work and mm. like to think that you're making a change, you know, to see those instances of white privilege and, you know, mm. if that had been black people who had, you know, carried out those same acts of violence and had done those things, it would have been, you know, <laughs> mass shootings and mass, yeah, yeah. you know, deaths. And that's, that's the sad reality. Um, and I think that's, and I think that's really difficult um, to, to accept, I suppose, and to, and to just see no repercussions and to see, you know, that being allowed to happen. Um, so I think, you know, whilst it's, it's fantastic that we are now in this new era and it's great that we can be hopeful that actually we're going to see some real change now. Um, that's not to say it's going to be perfect and I'm sure that it won't be. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's, it's a bit of hope and I think, you know, it's not going to get any worse. <laughs> you know yeah, than yeah. any donald trump it's not going to get worse i think or i hope um so you know and i think and i think it'll be something really positive and i think it will provide people with a platform to to really make some change you know and biden's already looking at you know trump's policies on race and equality which is fantastic um so i and i i suppose that's the whole thing with racism isn't it and the eradication of racism and tackling racial justice and social justice and whatever else that you just have to hope um, and I think the second that you lose hope that anything's ever going to change, then it's definitely not. Um, so, yeah, we I mean, I, I remain hopeful, um, but I suppose it's difficult, isn't it? At times when you see things over the last few weeks and you're like, oh, my God, like, and, uh, what's happening? Yeah, I like do that. such a nice message. And I think it's been quite a heavy episode. So I want to stay, stay on the positive vibe that we've got going. So you're obviously director of the Local Equality Commission. Do you want to mm -hmm. just tell us a bit about the organisation and what you do there? Yeah, absolutely. So we set it off, set it up, sorry, as a result of the Black Lives Matter protest. Um, I think it was because we wanted to provide some longevity to um, the work that we'd done um, following on from the protest. Um, so the Local Equality Commission is a community-based initiative um, that seeks to tackle racial, economic and social injustice um, through an equality agenda, working alongside organisations that are already existing, um, but also new organisations and through the education system um, to provide, you know, a, a blueprint, I suppose, for race-based rural equality work um, and to provide a profile for rural political blackness um, and to continue those conversations and to, to try and make some change from a grassroots perspective. And it's fantastic and we work with some incredible organisations, um, you know, and we're working alongside schools and the police. Um, and some other fantastic organizations that tackle racial justice um, and um, economic justice work and politics and working with councils. Um, and it's fantastic. And I've had the most incredible opportunities that I never ever expected to have had, um, you know, over the last few months and done some incredible projects. Um, so for that, I will always be grateful. And it's been an incredible platform for that purpose. 
yeah so, thank you so much for coming on so i've really no, enjoyed that i'm it's so really sorry insightful. it's taken me so long <laughs> <laughs> That's it's been a fab interview if you like that episode be sure to like and subscribe and follow us on twitter at backbench underscore uk here now with more news debate and opinion <laughs>